On June the 18th of 1940, Winston Churchill stood before British Parliament and he delivered a speech. I'm going to read a very small excerpt from that speech to you now. He said, the battle of France is over, and I expect that the battle of Britain is about to begin. And upon this battle, says Churchill, depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy will very soon be turned upon us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we've known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so abear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for another thousand years, men will still say that this was their finest hour. Imagine this impassioned speech by this gutsy leader like Churchill delivering this to this scared and intimidated and kind of quasi-confident group of parliamentarians. They, they didn't really know what was going to happen next. <laughs> Could they have imagined four or five years' worth of war, the United States getting involved the year later? And all that was going to happen, it was going to cost the lives of millions of troops. It was going to cost the lives of private citizens. It was, but what they needed was a leader such as Churchill to instill confidence in them. What was going to get them through was their allegiance to their nation, their allegiance to one another and some unity that they needed to have. Now imagine with me for a moment Moses. As he delivers what he gives to the children of Israel in our passage this morning, he's standing on the edge of the Jordan River, and they're peering into the Promised Land. They're looking into Canaan. They haven't gotten there yet, but they're looking. And all the children of Israel are looking in the same They're about to embark on a very unusual situation, something that they haven't been used to in the last 40 years as they've been wandering around in the wilderness. You know, in a lot of ways, the wilderness wanderings for them have been quite easy. Yeah, they haven't had water when they've wanted it or or some food that that maybe they they were a little bit sick of. But war and constant battle and constant threats are not something that they had been accustomed to to that point. But more than that, there's going to be surrounding nations with their gods and they're going to be tempted to believe in them or to pull a little bit from this religion and that religion and syncretize it into Christianity. No, Moses is not delivering a motivational speech like Churchill does, but it has a lot of the same components. For England, it it depended on their allegiance to to the motherland, to Britain. For, For Moses and for Israel, it's going to depend on their allegiance to God. How well it's going to go for them in Canaan is completely dependent upon are they going to rely on their covenant God. And as Moses says, obviously Moses is one man. He can't go and tell the law and tell the statutes and remind the covenant to every single person in Israel. He's got to rely on the families to disseminate this information. And that's what he's telling them here. The covenant family. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it look like for you and me? We know, generally speaking, but Moses gives us some specifics here. He's just given the law for the second time. Deuteronomy means second law. So in chapter 5, he gives the law again to the people of God. Complete and total obedience is what they must have upon what they have received. Because we are a covenant family, both in our biological nuclear families and as a spiritual family, We have a responsibility to teach our children about Christ and the importance of obeying his word. So point number one, 
A covenant family teaches the Word of God. Okay? Moses has some final instructions. If you remember, he's not going to go into the promised land with the children of Israel. There's going to be a new leader. It's going to be Joshua. But so Moses is, okay, here's my final charge, my final commands to you. Please listen up. You need to hear this. As I mentioned, once they cross the Jordan, they're going to be immersed in a pagan culture. They're going to be tempted to mold and to shape their beliefs into the things that they see around them. Not much longer from, from the time they enter, they're going to want a king. And why do they want a king? Because everybody else has a king. Not because they think this king is going to be great for them. We, we want to be like everybody else. They're going to be tempted to do this. In verse 4, as, I, as we read earlier, we receive what's known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word to hear. Okay? He, the, the Shema, these verses here in Deuteronomy, are still a central prayer in the Jewish prayer book even, even today. In fact, a small Jewish child, this is often one of the very first sections of Scripture that they learn. It means to hear. Not just, it means this, but not just this. Not just, listen up, this is really important, you need to hear this. It's, hear this with an expectation that you're then going to obey this and do this, what you hear. And so he says, write these things on your heart, and in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The commandments, the covenants, all that God has done, the exodus, how he, he brought them out of, out of bondage and slavery. Teach these things diligently to your children, Moses says. All the time, with repetition. As I mentioned, Moses cannot go door to door and tell everybody about these things. He's got to rely on the families to, be, to tell the next generation, and they, then they tell the next, and so forth and so on. <clears throat> Parents, is this something that's just a part of the everyday life of your household? Talking about the things of God? Talking about the gospel? Talking about the law and the statutes and the commandments and all that we've been saved from and all the wonderful things that he has done in Christ? Moses is telling them, this has just got to be a part of the normal routine of your day. The normal routine of life. Do Do we do this? Are we teaching God's word and sharing the gospel with our children all the time? For many of us, our kids have been baptized, maybe even baptized into this church. They've been welcomed into the covenant community, and we're told that they have privileges. But what are these privileges? I know I've asked that question several times. Now let me give you an answer. Think about your children who maybe have not professed their faith in Christ yet. What are they? Are they Christians? No, we don't believe that they're Christians. Are they pagans? No, they're not pagans. They're, they're, they're somehow enveloped into the family of God. Well, then what are they? We must present the gospel to our children just as we would anyone else. They need to be saved by the blood of Christ just as you and I do. Joel Beek, in his book, Bringing the Gospel to Covenant Children, says there are two errors that evangelical parents make today when viewing their covenant children. Here's number one. He says, number one, they overestimate the covenant. Okay? There's an overestimation. They make too big of a deal about it. As if to say, well, my child was baptized into the church, then they're fine. I don't need to worry about them. Abraham Kuyper, if you know that name, he, he believed in this. He, he's, he called it presumptive regeneration. We presume they're Christians because they've been baptized into the church and into a wonderful Christian home. There's a great benefit to that, but we do not presume that they are regenerate just because they are baptized into a covenant household. They still need Christ. They still must profess faith. And you can imagine the fruits of this. Didn't the Pharisees in the Old Testament, they said, I'm good, I don't need this Jesus because I'm in Abraham. I have a lineage. 
Are we teaching our kids the same thing when we overestimate the covenant? Secondly, we can underestimate the covenant. We can reduce it basically to insignificance. We can say, well, my child was baptized in the church, but I didn't really mean anything. I've got to now teach them everything. Well, of course, they do need to come to Christ and profess faith. So what's the proper estimation that we should have if our child has been baptized into a church? They need Jesus Christ just as everyone else does. But the Bible seems to be clear that God saves people. The norm, the, it's normative that he saves through his covenant families. It's not exclusive, but it's normative that he saves that way. And Joel Beek includes several verses for that. Now I'm quoting him directly. Covenant theology does not negate the need for us to evangelize our children, so don't overestimate. Nor does it discourage us, stop from, discourage us from doing so. Scripture offers no guarantee for the salvation of our children, but the covenant of grace offers us a great deal of hope outside of ourselves and a sovereign covenant-keeping God who will not forsake the works of his hands. Covenant theology should encourage us to evangelize our children as we daily, prayerfully, and expectantly depend upon the triune God <clears throat> for his blessings upon our efforts. It's normative that he saves through his covenant people, though not exclusive. Are your children receiving the benefits and the privileges of being in a covenant family? Are you teaching them these things as Moses is telling them to? When are we supposed to do this? Well, he says in <clears throat> the end of verse 7, Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. When you rise up, okay? When you wake up in the morning. Yes, all of us are trying to get breakfast into the kids, and we're trying to somehow get out of the house on time to get them to school on time. But are you starting the day teaching and talking about the things of God with your children? Sitting at home, do you talk with each other at home? Do you sit around the dinner table and talk about the sermon, or you talk about their Sunday school lesson, or you, again, you just, you talk about your day, you pray with one another? Walking by the way. <clears throat> we don't walk by the way anymore. Okay, walking by the way for us is riding in the car. Okay? We don't, there's no walking by the way so much. Are you talking about the things of God with your children as you ride in the car? Are you asking them about what they're learning at school, what they learned in their Sunday school class, and so forth? And finally, lying down. I don't know if it's like this at your house, but bedtime is a special time at our house. For whatever reason, our son Nathan is pretty sweet at bedtime. He's not always sweet the rest of the day, but he is at night. And so I, he's, he's more willing to talk about things like this as we're laying in bed. We tell him how much we love him, and we, we pray together. It's, it's a very sweet time in the Wyatt house. Not always, but that time seems to be. You tell him how he can pray for you, and you ask how, we can, how you can pray for your kids. But often we say in response to this, but the busyness of life makes this impossible. I know I'm supposed to do this, but you don't know our schedule. You don't know how we're running around, and you don't know all the commitments that we have. That may be true, but the command has not changed. We are to teach our children all the time, in every way, consistently and diligently. It's something we repeat again and again and again. But it's not something that you just say with your mouth. It's not just didactic. It's more than that. We model this for our kids, or we ought to. <clears throat> We take them to a soup kitchen. We, we take a meal to a young mom who's just had a child. We, we visit somebody in the hospital. You don't just say these things with your mouth. You model them for your children as well. 
And they're going to ask why we're doing this, which we'll get to in just a minute. Is this teaching a part of the regular, normative schedule of your life? You know, I've talked to many of you over the almost two years that we've been here, and I know many of you are doing this. I've heard of you tell stories of, of repairing a car with your son, and you talk, about, you talk about the sermon or a Sunday school lesson that he has been learning. One of you told me about you were repairing a deck with your son, you're, you're, you're nailing in boards, and the sermon from the past week comes up, and you're able to talk about these things. It's not in an uncomfortable way. They come up just in life. I've even heard of a dad who, who told me that they were driving to a football game this, this past fall. And it was time for him to talk to his son about sex and relationships. And that was a perfect time for it to come up. A three-hour car ride to a football game. It just, it happened. It was, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Where else are they going to be learning about these things if not us? The scriptures should be a topic of conversation that just normally flows out of our mouth. We talk to our kids about the TV shows they watch. What's the worldview do you think that this is being, that this is showing? How is Christianity different from that? This is not a call to do Bible studies at all time, although I think family worship is definitely in view here. It's exhorting us to make conversation about scripture and theology just as normal as SEC football, as politics, and as the latest episode of Fixer Upper. That's the stuff that you talk about all the time. Why don't you make, why don't you redeem that and talk about the things of God as well? It can also be something very simple like a post-it note with a scripture on it that's on your refrigerator or your bathroom mirror or your dashboard. Number two, a covenant family remembers the word of God. When Israel begins to inhabit the land, they will quickly be in danger of forgetting everything that God has done for them. How could they possibly do this? Well, we do the same. Moses warns them, don't forget God's promises, his generous gifts, his mighty acts in delivering his people from Egypt. In the years ahead, Moses says, you are likely to forget what God has done. You're going to obtain cities, but you didn't build them. You're going to obtain houses filled with good things, but you didn't fill them. You're going to enjoy cisterns that you didn't dig. You're going to enjoy vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. You're going to enjoy all these wonderful things, and you did nothing to deserve them or to receive them or to earn them in any way. I heard one author say, throughout history, affluence has led to spiritual indifference. The more and more we have, the more and more likely it is that we forget God who has provided all these things for us. John Calvin says that abundance begets arrogance and forgetfulness. You get more, and you start to think to yourself, well, I really deserve this. I was owed this. I worked hard for this, Well, which may be true, but it's God that gave them to you. And the more and more we get, often the more and more forgetful we are to the one who gave it to us. This is Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve him and money. It doesn't mean you can't have money. It just means you can't serve money. Are you, you can't serve two great things. You can't serve two masters. One is going to always take a back seat to the other. And we do this all the time. We enjoy the provisions of God and his blessings, but we don't acknowledge him and we don't give thanks to him for them. He says, Israel, you're going to be convinced at some point in the land of Canaan that you can do this without God, that you don't need his help anymore. So that's why he exhorts them, guard yourself. Be careful that this doesn't happen. Because in the day that you do that, God is going to take his hand of protection away from you, which, of course, we know happens. 
Parents, are you, are we preparing our children for this? For the onslaught that's either on them now or is coming soon? For the, the competing loyalties that are going to be grappling for their heart, for self-absorption, for materialism, for all sorts of things? No, we can't proof our kids as if there's some, some bubble we can put them in where they're never going to face the lusts and the sins of this world, but are we preparing them? Are we teaching them? Do they feel comfortable to say these things to us? I don't say this to put pressure on us. I'm just asking us, are we taking seriously our role as covenant teachers to the next generation? You know, the psalmist urges in Psalm chapter 1 to meditate on God's law day and night. In other words, all the time. Why? Because we need that constant reminder. We are so forgetful of God and his word and all his promises and all that he has done for us. Otherwise, they will act foolishly in verse 16, just like they did at Massa. This was referring to a story in Exodus 17, when the children of Israel, for the millionth time, start grumbling about something. The water, there's not enough water, it's not sweet. You know, they're just always complaining. Why couldn't they just have responded like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4? In Matthew 4, it's the temptations. And the second two temptations from Satan... It's when he tempts him to jump off uh, the temple and the, and the angels will, will save him so he won't strike a foot against the ground. Or Satan says, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdom, kingdoms of this world. In both instances, Jesus quotes scripture and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, our passage for this morning. See, Jesus doesn't ever banter with Satan. There's no debate. There's no, well, l- l- let me pick up on something you said there, Satan. That's a little wrong. Let me, let me see how you respond to this. He quotes scripture back to him, and that's it. That's the end of it. Do we know the word of God well enough that it comes to us in those times and in those situations? Are we preparing our kids the same? We need reminders again and again and again. And as we're going to come to the table in a few minutes, this is another reminder that we get again and again and again. Lastly, number three, a covenant family explains the word of God. (laughs) It is natural for our children to ask us, well, why? Why is that the rule in our house? Why are things that way? Why, 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 why? I get that question a billion times every single day in my house. What's the meaning? Okay, it says in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? The son is he's, he's high, setting up a hypothetical situation here. Your son is its parents. Your son is going to come to you in time and say, what, what's up with these testimonies and these laws? Why do we believe all this? In other words, why are these the rules? Give me an explanation. Why is this the, the rules and the, and the directions that we follow? <clears throat> I told you my son Nathan asks a lot of questions. He's four years old. That's just normative, I know. Um, but, man, he asks a lot of questions. His big question right now is, he loves to talk about bugs and animals and all that. And any, any animal that comes up, he asks, Daddy, do they bite or do they sting? It's like every time, it's a tiger, well, do they bite or sting? Well, the tigers bite, you know. A bee, do they bite or sting? Well, they sting. An octopus, do they bite or sting? I, I have no idea if they bite or sting, son. I, they, they bite. Like it, you, I have to give a one or the other. He asks, do they bite or sting about everything? It's, I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. And then the questions get a little bit more insightful, whether he realizes it or not. The other night in his little nursery class, he was being taught Adam and Eve, and he was driving home with Lauren, 
And mommy, Adam and Eve ate fruit and they weren't supposed to. And that's, that's right, buddy. They, they weren't supposed to eat, eat that. And mommy, God was really mad at Adam and Eve when, that, yeah, he, he, was. he was. He was very disappointed that they had done that. And then he's sitting in the back of the car and the wheels are just turning, just turning and turning. Mommy, why did God create food that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat? You know, that's a great question, son. Um, let me get out the systematic theology book for that. Uh, God is sovereign, son. That's all you need to know. It's, sometimes, but it's great that he's, asking, that he's asking those questions. He's coming wanting answers to the things of God, right? He, there's an opportunity to catechize and to teach even in those times. It's, it is, as I've mentioned, one of the great benefits that our children must be receiving. Where else are they going to receive it if not at home and if not amongst their church family? The lasting nature of the covenant depends on these things, is what Moses is telling them. It depends on it. The lasting nature of Christianity depends on us, parents, telling our kids about it, bringing them to church so they might hear from their friends and from pastors and so forth. Are you taking time to explain the Word of God to your children? Are you taking time to model it for your children? And Moses does not leave them without an answer. He gives them the answer in verses 20 through 25. This is what you're to say to your children when they ask why. This is what we once were. This is what God did. This is what we now have, and this is what we now are. He first tells them of the slavery and the bondage that they had in Egypt. Okay? This, was, this used to be what was going on. We, we didn't have anything, and we were slaves to this nation. We tell our children, we used to be slaves to our sin, dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what used to be indicative of us. Next, we tell them of God liberating them from this bondage. He did all these mighty and wonderful things. He, he did all these plagues, and then, then he took us out of Egypt, and, and the, he opened the sea up, and all the Egyptians were killed on the sea. Isn't this wonderful what our God did? We tell our children about the same things. We used to literally be dead, son and daughter, in our sins. And God took out our heart that was nasty and sinful and black, and he gave us a heart that loved him. That we couldn't do any of this ourselves, but he did it for us. And because of that, <clears throat> why, why do we follow him? Look what he's done for us. Look at all the wonderful things that we enjoy now because of what he's done. That's why we do it. Moses is telling the parents to share the gospel with their kids. After all, isn't this the answer to, question, to the question of why do we obey? We obey because of how much he's loved us. I remember becoming a Christian in college and just really, really wrestling with so many points of theology. Just so many things. And I drove two guys that I knew absolutely crazy. This one guy who was older than me in my fraternity and then a pastor of a little church plant in Knoxville uh, where I was in school. I would call these guys at like 11.30 or 12 at night. Okay, tell me again what Romans 9 is talking about. I don't understand. Please work through this with me. And I would just pester them day after day after day. But they were always so patient with me to open up the scriptures again, to explain it. Here's what this means, Andy. I know this is what you were taught, but I don't think that's right. This is what the Bible's saying. In our Presbyterian General Assembly meetings, very often when someone stands up to speak, they will address everyone as... They will say, fathers and brothers, and then they will go into what they're saying. I always really like that we do that. Fathers and brothers, 
as they're about to speak to, speak to, the, to the men of the Presbytery of the General Assembly, referring to everyone as their spiritual fathers and brothers, just as many of us are in here today. We address one another as fathers and brothers because it's not just the biological family that Moses is talking to, it's all of us. We are fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers to one another because we are related in Christ. You know, what if a a wayward child in this congregation was not just seen as the responsibility of the parents, but the responsibility of us as a whole? What if it meant that our shepherds went to that child and pleaded with them to return to the fold? This would be the covenant family in action. It would be all of us. We, we care for all of us because we are spiritual brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. <clears throat> Let me close with this illustration and explanation. <clears throat> there was a young boy who once approached his father and asked him, Dad, why does the wind blow? He said, I, I, I don't know, son. I, I don't know why it blows. Well, where, what about the clouds? Where do the clouds come from? Son, I'm, I'm not really sure where the clouds come from. I don't know much about that. Well, Dad, what makes a rainbow? Son, I, I, don't, I don't know what makes a rainbow. And finally, the son looks at his dad and said, Dad, do you mind me asking you these questions? And he said, well, not at all, son. How else are you going to learn about these things? <laughs> How else are your children going to learn about these things? You don't want them to learn about these things from the basketball locker room. You don't want them to learn about these things from television. They're going to learn about these things. They're going to be taught. There's teachers everywhere. You want them to learn about the things of God from the family of God and from your biological nuclear family of God. We must take seriously this charge and command. If your kids are in the nursery or cornerstone, uh, you received probably on Wednesday night this little booklet. Something's about to happen in Jerusalem. It's 21 days of family devotions celebrating the resurrection. It's something that's been approved by our denomination, the PCA. It's a little family worship guide leading up to Easter. I don't, maybe you, many of you families already have some family worship in place, but perhaps this could be a catalyst for some of you. It's very simple. It's very easy, very short. There's hymns that are included that you can sing with your family. I just, I encourage you to take advantage of this. If you'd like a copy, please see me or Mary Sanchez, and we can get you one if you would like it. This family is unique. Let us take advantage of this covenant bond. Parents, your children are being bombarded everywhere they turn, saying, no, 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 don't listen to Christ. Listen to this. Do this. It's all about you. Everything is about you and you and you. And would your kids ask you, Mom, Dad, why do we believe something that's so different than the world believes? Why do we believe something so different than everyone else seems to believe? Why? Why? Why do we follow these rules? Why do we love Jesus and not... Why? It's the perfect opportunity to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that has been done for you. No, it's not going to be what's popular. It's not going to be what's, what, what everyone else is saying or what everyone else wants to hear. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is what they need. They need it because they are sinful and they need to be saved from their sins. And as we're going to see in, in the second service, these professions of faith from these young students, they are professing before us, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that God is great. I know that he has met all my needs in Christ. And I believe in him and I trust in him. And that we might pray for those students, that that would be a reality for them for the rest of their lives.
this is what they need. It may not be what they want, but this is what they need. William Tyndale said shortly, or pretty soon before his death, he said, banish me to the poorest corner of the world if you please, but just let me teach the little children and preach the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for our time this morning. We ask that you would give us the strength and the perseverance and the diligence to preach the word of God to our kids. Lord, that they would believe that their testimony would be that they always have known you and always loved you and trusted you. Would you give them great courage as it becomes increasingly more difficult and this world becomes increasingly more hostile to Christianity? Would you give us and would you give our kids great courage to believe in you? You are worthy of our praise and our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.